Eating disorders can affect anyone, anywhere. Let's get real about who struggles and bust harmful myths together. Join us for National Eating Disorders Awareness Week from February 26th through March 4th. Learn how to get involved as an individual or become a partner organization at NidaAwareness.org. Quick tips to participate? You can share Nita's screening tool to raise awareness at nationaleatingdisorders.org slash screening. That's nationaleatingdisorders.org slash screening. I'll also link it in the podcast description. If you or someone you know could be struggling with an eating disorder, don't ignore the problem. There is help and recovery is possible. Together, we can make a difference. Welcome back to United Love Project. My name is Mandy Smith. For today's episode, I'm excited to introduce to our first guest, Harriet Manneker. I first noticed her on a BuzzFeed video. The video showed a notebook paper with a sketched image of a young girl. She described her story about how she had an eating disorder that developed in her childhood. And that story really resonated with me personally. I highly encourage you to watch it for yourselves and I'm gonna link it in the podcast description. But there's a lot more to her story now and how she got to where she is today. So welcome, Harriet. Thank you. Um, So as of today, I am 19 years old. The video I made was about three years ago, and it is kind of my one-hit wonder at at this point. But um, before that video, and during that video, actually, I was not recovered. I was in the hospital. And I was a high school student desperately trying to graduate and manage all of these things. And so much has happened in these three years. Um, I would still always say that I'm in recovery. I don't think you're ever recovered. Um, But right now, I am in college. I'm actually on a gap year. I finally have my driver's license. I am doing the things that normal 19-year-olds do had my first legal drink in Israel, um, first non-legal drink in the U.S. You know, it's just going back to normal life. So adjusting to normal life, how has that been for you? Um, it's always a process. I'd say right now is kind of just rebounding still from this awful experience I had in high school, but very much a learning experience. Um, And at this point, I'm trying to do things that I enjoy and just take care of myself, but it's an everyday thing that I have to remind myself of. It's not a natural thing yet. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think a lot of other people can relate with that as well. So for everybody who isn't already familiar with your story, could you give some background into why you made the video about your journey? Um, so I think I always say that the reason I wanted to do that video so desperately is because it just, it was kind of senseless pain. And I wanted, like I said in the video, I wanted to make some kind of meaning out of it so that I could move on. And I think it was pivotal in helping me move on. It wasn't the deciding factor. And I still struggled a long time after that. And I still I still do struggle in a very different way. 
Um, but it helped me to tell my story and to try to help others with that story. And it wasn't so senseless after that. So after that point, I was still a junior in high school. And during my senior year, things got much worse, actually. Um, I actually lived in a homeless shelter during my senior year. Um, we had some difficulties with my family. So by no means was that the end of my struggle. In some ways, it was the beginning of a very different struggle. But after my senior year, I kind of pulled through. I would say I'm a very willful person. Everyone has always said that since I was a little girl. I'm very strong-willed for better or for worse. So I'm the same way. Yeah, I kind of, so I kind of just, you know, survived. And after that summer, I think I began to really thrive. Um, I got myself into college. I went to UMass Amherst. And it wasn't an easy year. I mean, I would like to say that everything was perfect after that, but it wasn't. Um, I mean, that year I started dating someone first semester and I fell into that trap where I really didn't branch out. Um, so after I broke up with him, it was pretty hard for me. I felt very alone and that's a feeling that's familiar to me because in an eating disorder, you're very isolated and very alone and it was scary. Um, and I got mono and I really didn't know how to take care of myself because I don't have a whole lot of practice with that. So I did something I thought I would never, ever do. And I took a year off and I'm still on that year. And I have zero regrets about that. It has been one of the most beneficial years of my life, maybe the most beneficial years, just because I'm finally taking the time to learn how to take care of myself and to do things that I truly want to do, not just that I feel obligated to do. Yeah. And I think that's like the core of self-care is like knowing, you know, when to go, but also knowing when to like take a break and just know yourself and be present with yourself. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people feel really guilty about not being productive or like they have to be very productive to make up for the eating disorder. I know I applied for 17 colleges because I felt like if I went to an Ivy League, that would make up for all of this and just, you know, kind of erase it because I would be doing what I would have done had I not had an eating disorder. And I didn't get into any Ivy Leagues, probably because my transcript had a lot of red flags. I was still a good student, but people knew I wasn't healthy and there was nothing I could do about that. And that took me a long time to accept that fact that there is nothing that I could do about it and nothing I could change about it. And that was a big part of taking care of myself, recognizing that I'm not to blame for this. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. So would you mind telling us a little bit about the gap year you've taken so far? Um, well, this gap year for me has honestly been a lot of catch up from what I missed during my teenage years, which is kind of weird. Um, and I felt really embarrassed about it at first because everyone else had their driver's license and was kind of was over like arguing with their parents or like asking permission to go out. And I am, I'm living with my dad right now. So that's kind of a weird thing. And it 
made me feel like I was in high school again, which was hard to get over at first. Um, but I've really come to kind of rebuild my relationship with my dad and feel like I have a home and a family again, which has been probably the most important thing. Um, but at the beginning of my gap year, I set a couple of goals for myself. I hadn't decided on a major, so I really wanted to think carefully and deeply about what I love and what I want to do with my life rather than what I felt I should do. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that I'd like to major in journalism with a concentration in digital humanities and new media, which is probably no surprise because that was pretty much um, what that video was. So, I mean, at my core, I think that's ultimately what I knew to be true about myself, and I had to rediscover that. Um, so that was kind of my first goal. And my second was to finally get my driver's license because, unfortunately, I was too sick to be able to really drive. Um, my dad, you know, understandably didn't want to drive with someone who was that sick. So I was finally able to get my driver's license, which was a really big step for me and a big part of growing up in general. I think this year has been the year I finally let myself grow up. Um, and I actually, I just recently did my birthright trip, which to those of you who don't know, is a free trip to Israel for all Jewish kids and, born in America. And that was a truly life-changing experience for me. It was the first thing I really made happen on my own because I wanted to make that happen. Um, it was the first time I kind of just let myself be there and be free. And I didn't have any sort of meal plan. I didn't have any set kind of guidelines for eating. I just ate what I wanted. And that was so liberating. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, it was an incredible 10 days. But also, people who meet me now don't know what I've been through. and. I'm really proud of that. So that was a big deal for me. Yeah, that really sounds like an amazing experience. So um, you were talking a little bit about the meal plans and um, like how you had restrictive diets in the past. We've talked about that before. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that usually works with, you know, what you've been through and um, your recovery process? Honestly, meal plans have never worked for me, and I get that people need them. I get that they provide a structure for eating, um, but even, you know, a part that I'm kind of ashamed about from my eating disorder is that when you restrict, I think more often than not, people fall into a habit of, like, binging and then restricting, and that's not talked about enough, like... For me, I would go through a year of restricting, then a year of binging, then back to restricting. And no one really addresses the binging part because it definitely is more shameful in our society. But I want to talk about it because I, it was just as hard, if not harder for me than anorexia. And I'm still primarily diagnosed with anorexia. And I felt guilty during those binging phases to be diagnosed with anorexia. Um, but that's kind of besides the point. I mean, so meal plans, whether I was binging or restricting, really never worked for me. And people talk about intuitive eating. And I know, again, that doesn't work for everyone. But 
finally, I think I'm at a phase where it does seem to be working for me to just eat what I want, really be in touch with whether I'm full or whether I'm hungry or whether I'm what, you know, therapists call heart hungry, where you just want to eat, which is totally, totally normal. Everyone sometimes wants to just, you know, snack or whatever. Um, But I think that, again, like that takes a long time to get to. And it took a long time for me to like recognize what intuitive eating versus what my eating disorder was telling me it wanted really was. I've been through that before too, where I've had um, different disorders in the past and I'm trying to learn, I'm still trying to learn this concept of intuitive eating. And I think it's something that we all go through to a degree where we want, we want to be able to like not restrict ourselves, but still feel like that liberating feeling of choosing you're choosing it, whether, you know, it be something that is for your well-being, like you're eating, even if it's junk food and you're eating it with friends and you're just having a good time and hanging out. I think that as a health coach, my perspective on that is that it's still for your well-being because you're doing it with friends where you can, you know, you're still getting that like comforting community side of it. Um, and if it's like a rare thing or whatever, even if it's not super rare, but it's like, you know, a couple times a week, it's still something that's super fantastic for you to kind of break the mold and not feel like you're having a cheat day. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's self-care. Exactly. I totally agree with that. So I really love the idea of intuitive eating, but I do think there is a time where it, you can't kind of jump right into that because you have to let your body have some time to figure out what intuitive eating really is. At this point for me, um, I mean, I don't, I can't speak to other people's experiences, but to me, meal plans always felt restrictive in a different sense to me. At this point, like I'm really engaging with what I actually want versus what any kind of eating disorder is telling me, whether it's binging or anorexia. I mean, that's your eating disorder, so to speak. That's your eating disorder telling you what it wants, not you. And I think, honestly, like, lately I've been really wanting the foods that comforted me in my childhood. Like, I used to have an avocado cheese and hummus sandwich packed every day in my lunch, and I loved that. I looked forward to it. So I've been having that lately. And, like, that, like, foods from my childhood have been my biggest craving. That sounds so good. I'm going to have to try that. So good. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I highly recommend it. I can make a cookbook. Um, so I'll actually share a little random thing too. I've been craving a lot of – my grandpa used to make this sandwich, and it's very nostalgic for me. Um, it's like a sprouted green toast with peanut butter, avocado, tomato, cucumber, lettuce, mayo, and bacon. And it is so good. Like people like think it's super weird that I like it, but I don't know if it's the nostalgic factor or what it is, but it's delicious. Everybody should try it. I swear. I swear it is so good. You would be so surprised. So yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, if if that's what feels good to you, you should totally do it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's so good. And it's definitely like, it's not emotional eating, but it's an emotional aspect and that's so fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you connect one with part it. Of, right. I think a big part of intuitive eating for me is getting in touch with what 
really truly tastes good and feels good to me. So how have you been able to experience that for yourself? Like how have you been able to process that? I think a lot of times my mind reverts to, oh, how many calories, what's the least calories, whatever. And I have to tell myself literally, shut up. Like, just shut up. I (laughs) want, like, you know, when I was in Israel, that was happening a lot to me. I'd be like, oh, I should have this. But then I'd be like, you know what? I want that, though. And most of the time what I was choosing was healthy. It just wasn't. Like, what I want, what I genuinely like, I grew up in a household where we ate pretty healthy. Um, So what I genuinely want is usually pretty healthy. It's just, it's not always the lightest, leanest option. And honestly, that's what led to binging is when I was hungry, you know? Like, when I was always choosing the lightest option, when you're not really satisfied, when you're restricting yourself, that's what leads to emotional dissatisfaction too and what leads you your body and your mind to want everything at least in my experience and that's not taking care of yourself either so I've really been trying to pay attention to what I want yeah and it you want to make sure that it's nourishing to you on you know different levels yeah for sure So um, I know we've talked a little bit before about binge eating and kind of that like bipolar almost change into, you said anorexia and then going into a binge. You felt like this process was really overwhelming for you, but at the same time, you felt like it's common, like this this has to be something that people talk about because this happens a lot with other people who have eating disorders. Is that correct? Absolutely. I know for a fact that it happens more often than not. I mean, I've seen people go through this and it's not talked about. Um, I mean, like it's, it's shameful as opposed to anorexia, which is often, I don't want to say this, but it's true. It's celebrated in our society. Um, so for me, I would go like, I mean, it was a pattern. It was a very clear pattern. I'd go a year of severe restriction. And then I think my my body was just so malnourished that I would binge and I would binge to an extent that I felt so horrible about it that I'd go back to restricting. And then it just happened over and over again. My four years of high school was literally that pattern. And so I think for me, well, the key to break out of it again was just figuring out what I really wanted and trying to really take care of myself because neither binging nor restricting is actually taking care of yourself. And it might seem at first like, oh, she's eating again. That's taking care of herself, but it's not. It's really shameful and often secretive. And and that's why it's, and that might be a, a big reason why it's not talk, talked about because at least for me, it was secretive and it was, it was very shameful. And I think that was because I shamed myself for it. And a big part of breaking out of that for me was to stop feeling ashamed of eating. Yeah. So can you go into that, how you feel like you started breaking out of the cycle? Um, Essentially, I really like, it's just kind of a shift that each person individually has to make at some point. Um, For me, honestly, um, binging, was so emotionally difficult for me that I 
really took a look at my life and I, I can obviously, like, I knew the pattern. I knew what was going on and I knew that restricting wouldn't ultimately, ultimately result in another, like, I knew that restricting would ultimately result in another binging cycle. And to me, the binging is worse than the restricting. Um, so I decided to kind of find the middle path as Buddha once did. And that has been working for me so far. That's amazing. And I'm really glad that you can be able to talk about it and give this kind of transparency towards your story. I know that it's still like a journey that every single person is going to have to discover for themselves. But I think when we talk about it, it's something that we can actually manage and like openly deal with. And I think that's what it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was in my, I mean, I'm still, like I said, in recovery, it's an everyday thing. But at the same time, I think being able to be honest with myself, I lied constantly when I was in the absolute depths of my eating disorder. I lied about what I was eating, what I was not eating, what I was doing, how, like, I would, you know, I don't want to go into all the behaviors that I did, but essentially I was constantly lying. And I think one of the biggest things that's helped me is to be completely honest with those around me and with myself, even if it's hard to be honest and be truthful. I think sometimes too, when we talk about things, like if you're seeing a therapist, which honestly, I think everybody should be doing, (laughs) we all need to be doing that. Um, But when you talk about something and you give words to it and you're able to like speak, speak it out loud, even if it's by yourself, where it's not just in your head anymore, you're giving clarity to that so that you can actually deal with it. So it's something that I'm really impressed that you've been able to do that. And it takes a long time sometimes for people to feel like they can do that. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I I think the binging part was the most shameful for me, especially after producing that video. I felt like, oh, I'm seen as anorexic. I can't do this. Or people will think I'm a liar or whatever. And during that time, I was literally in the hospital when I made that video. I was not by any means recovered. And I think that video might project an image that I was. And I'm still, I want to just convey this as much as I can. I'm still in recovery. It's an absolute process that goes on for a very long time. And it it definitely lessens and lessens over time. I hate when people say it's never over because it's over. Like you're, I'm not a work in progress anymore. I am me. I'm not a work in progress. I'm just someone who continually has to make an effort just like everyone every single day. So can you kind of expand on that? Just kind of telling us your perspective on how you've felt like you are enough and, and you, cause you said that in your video, you know, that was the whole thing on the end of it was that you are enough, but what does that feel like now having to, having to almost hold this image of like, that's what I said. Um, but sometimes we don't feel like that every day. You know, sometimes we still struggle with not feeling like we're enough. And it's really, really hard to see like the good on those days, especially. Well, I certainly didn't believe that when I made the video. And I'd say often I still struggle to feel like I'm enough. I, it's not a sometimes thing. It's an often thing. And I have to remind myself that 
I am doing my best. I'm doing everything I can. I am trying to, you know, I, the serenity's prayer is something I often repeat to myself. Um, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to th- change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And, you know, the past is something I can't change, but I'm trying to change every single day. However, I am trying to remember that I am, again, I'm not a work in progress. Who I am is enough while at the same time trying to affirm that more and more. I think that's the key, not to try to like, not to try to change yourself, but to accept yourself and to learn who you are. Because ultimately at your core, I think the eating disorder covers up who you are. And it's not that you have to change. It's that you have to learn who you are again, or maybe for the first time, because this is the first time I'm an adult learning who I am. And I kind of missed my childhood. So I'm for the first time really trying to be myself rather than change myself. And that's really the core, I think, of even um, the kind of work that I do as a health coach that talks about rediscovering you and like even discovering yourself for the first time. That's why we call it self-discoveries. And that can usually be the key for most people to change their eating habits. So... I agree. Yeah, that was really a paradigm shift for me was not trying to disappear, but to fully be myself. I wanted to ask you this earlier. What kind of self-care practices and like different things that you do now that help you feel like you can kind of come back to balance? Okay, so I, this might be controversial, but in eating disorder clinics and stuff, you have to do positive affirmations and you have to paint your nails and just do these very superficial things. And to me, I hate positive affirmations. I hate them so much. Um, Because, okay, so I recently read a book called This Is How, and I highly recommend this book. Um, It's by Augustine Burroughs, and I highly recommend all of his books, but specifically This Is How. And something he, he really... Um, kind of expounds upon is that self-affirmations are looking yourself in the eye and lying to yourself. You're saying, I want to feel better, but you don't even know how you're feeling. So how can you feel better if you don't know what you're feeling? I generally, it's very freeing to look yourself in the eye and say, I'm like, I'm ugly. I feel like shit. Like I (laughs) feel hopeless and distraught and alone and to really you know I mean I hate this term but to sit in those feelings and to acknowledge them and not to cover them up and then to say okay I really feel this way right now this is really truly how I'm feeling and that's okay and now I want to feel better I think saying to yourself oh I'm great I feel so beautiful blah 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 I think that is Yes. And if you don't really, if you feel that way, fantastic. That's what you should be saying to yourself. That is so great. That is so admirable. But that's not how I feel most of the time. So I look myself in the eye and I say the things I'm feeling. (laughs) And then I kind of say, okay, these are the things I'm feeling. That's all right. And it's so freeing to just be honest with yourself and then to say, okay, 
now how can I not change these feelings, but how can I have more feelings and be okay with all of those feelings, maybe some more positive feelings. Or I don't want to say positive or negative because all feelings are just feelings. Right. But I I think one of the biggest self-care practices that I do is just not lying to myself. And that's, you know, that's kind of a weird thing to say because everyone, like, encourages positive affirmations. I just, personally, I hate them. And (laughs) this is my self-care practice. And it's kind of a weird one. But this is what helps me. And I, I write those feelings down. And it makes me feel better to just see them on a page and to say, okay, this is, these are the feelings. And I often talk about them with my therapist and, and just validate them. I kind of hate that word too. I hate those therapist type words, but it's true. Um, other self-care practices, honestly, just, okay. Something really hard for me is just getting up in the morning and showering and, doing my daily routine. So I think a big self-care practice for me is just getting up in the morning, showering, picking out an outfit that I like and feel comfortable in, and starting my day. Um, Other than that, I think not going to the gym is a huge self-care practice for me. It's really hard because my dad goes to the gym and I feel like, oh, I should go to the gym. But not going to the gym is a very good self-care practice for me. And I'm still very active. I do yoga at my house. I take my dog for walks. I ski. I skate. And just as a caveat for anyone who can't do physical activity right now, that's good. Don't do it. That was me for a while. But for me, going outside and just being in the fresh air and being with my dog and my friends, that is enough. And that is, you know, it's plenty of exercise. And not going to the gym is very important for my recovery. So those are a few of my big ones. That's amazing. And I wanted to say, I really want to read that book because I love that perspective that you were talking about earlier. So I'm going to have to check that out. Um, but fantastic. <laughs> I think it's great, this kind of honesty and giving space to those emotions and letting them be expressed, like so much better than trying to lie or hide them. So I really appreciate that. I do. Um, I love the bio-individuality side of it. That's what my school calls it, where you – what works for you may not work for everybody. Like for some people, that self-affirmation thing might be really what's key. Or as you said, they might be really feeling those emotions and that's awesome for them to be able to express them. But at the same time, if you're not feeling like that, I think that's okay too. And to give space for that is totally okay. So I wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you would like to share? So I think some things that people should know about me. Um, Number one, I've really noticed that any dog can be a therapy dog. For me, I hate being alone. I start to feel lonely when I'm alone, and I hope that I'm able to be with myself someday rather than by myself. But right now, I tend to feel lonely, and I started having, honestly, full-on conversations with my dog, which that might seem crazy, but to me, it, it feels less lonely, and we just hang out together. And I think giving him love is, you know, I really didn't feel like I was, giving other people love when I wasn't able to give myself love as cliche as that is. And I really like, and I really try to fully just love him, which as weird as that sounds, that's 
a big self-care practice for me is like fully allowing myself to love other animals and people and things, you know, anything that makes you feel better. Um, Other than that, I love reading. I love seeing other people's perspectives. I think it's the only way you can really get inside someone's head. And that has always been a big deal for me all through all of this. And I highly recommend reading to everyone, but in particular people who have struggled. I think you can gain insight. And not only that, it does help you feel less alone. So what kind of books have you been reading other than the one you mentioned? I read all kinds of books, uh, non, mostly nonfiction. Um, I tend to read on, I have a Kindle app on my phone, so people think I'm a normal person texting when really I'm just reading all the time. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm trying to list off, off the top of my head. One book that stands out to me is The Alchemist. It's absolutely amazing, and The Art of Hearing Heartbeats. Um, I read that a while ago. I actually have a list of book recommendations, and I can send that to you. I would love that. (laughs) I keep an ongoing list, so I love making lists. That's another hobby of mine. Color coding, making lists, organizing. It's my favorite thing to do. Oh, my goodness. I need your help because I'm so not one of – I don't have that gift. I wish I did, but I'm terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. Seriously, it's one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) So last question, what are your binge-worthy shows that you love to watch right now? Currently, I'm kind of obsessed with the show Black Mirror. Also, I finished Master of None, but I still rewatch it. Um, so I just watch a lot of Netflix, basically. Right, yes, so <laughs> like do I. Anyone. Um, <laughs> Lost City is I've heard that is such a great show. I haven't started it yet, but I really want to. It is so good, and as a Jewish girl, I just I love both of them. So, yeah, highly recommend that show. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is fantastic, and I really appreciate you doing this, Harriet. I'm so glad you came on the podcast. Of course. It was, it was great for me, too. So I thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of United Love Project. Talking with Harriet and listening to her story, I am left feeling so inspired and empowered on my own health journey, and I hope you are too. Everyone has a story to tell, and I would like to hear yours. I'm starting a community by sharing stories of self-discovery. If you would like to contact me or know more information, you can reach me at unitedloveproject at gmail.com or unitedloveproject.com. 